Hi there. Good morning, Lex. Good morning. Now, will you sing your theme song on demand, or do I have to whistle it? <laughs> it's got to be whistled. That's the policy. Your. <laughs> now, how many people listen to that podcast? Is it a common thing that someone asks you to, to sing your, your theme song? It is not a huge show, but it's doing a, uh, a few thousand downloads a day. Wow. Um, I hear about the theme song a lot, and it's from people oftentimes who I don't really know. <laughs> like me. It's, um, well, you and I are best friends now, but it's, um, it's definitely, an, uh, unintentionally, I created an earworm because I hear people who complain about that it's in their head all day. Now, did you re rely on any sort of uh, post-production magic to get it in tune, or can you sing pretty well? I can sing okay. Um, I, didn't, I mean, I just recorded in GarageBand. I did not use the auto-tune at all. <laughs> Allegedly. Allegedly. How, how does your family feel about having a theme song? Because I think if I did that, I would get it picked on just relentlessly. Um, I, you know, my kids are young enough that they just think it's awesome, and they want their own theme songs. And uh, my wife hasn't really issued any comment. <laughs> <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> I would definitely get a comment. I mean, and I think the kids would like it. I, I think your entire experience would mirror mine, actually. The kids would demand their own theme song. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> All right, so I invited you on because you were looking for a Rails programmer, and I thought this would be a great opportunity to uh, have a kind of medium-length discussion about what someone that's not currently a programmer, at least, looks for in a programmer. Because inside the programming community, you know, there are a lot of opinions about what makes a good programmer, and I've both been a programmer and, and not a programmer for long periods of time. And I think that the opinion of what makes a good programmer varies quite a bit from you know, uh, fellow programmers and um, those that aren't day-to-day. -day. So I thought that'd be a fun conversation. Plus, given that you're in podcasting and this is a podcast and you're looking for a Rails job and this is the Rails podcast, there would be a, a pretty good fit. So Wait, this is a podcast? <laughs> exactly. I thought we were just having a random... Conversation. Early morning Skype call. That's right. <laughs> exactly. So before we get into that, have you programmed in the past? <coughs> Excuse me. Yeah, I started. <coughs> Podcasting gold. I apologize. <laughs> I, uh, I started my career as a web developer. You know, I, I started programming when I was about six years old on the family's Commodore 64, and my parents hired me a, a tutor from Radio Shack who would come to the house twice a week to work on coding projects with me. Um, and uh, I programmed first on the Commodore and then also on our, our K-Pro. And then I switched to programming on our Apple IIc. And then I went to a summer camp where, among other things, I studied more computer programming. So that was when I had my first interaction with Macs. And uh, my family got its first Mac soon thereafter. So I did tons of programming throughout uh, childhood into high school. And then by the time I went to college, I said, well, I'm done. I'm not going to wrestle with computers anymore for a living. And so I majored in linguistics and I stopped focusing on the programming stuff at all. Um, but then when I graduated, my first job out of college was working again as a web developer. So I worked, uh, well, I said again as a web developer is my first time doing web development, but working as a developer. Uh, I worked as a developer for Intermix, which was the parent company of MySpace. There was all PHP and MySQL. Uh, because I didn't work on MySpace itself, which was Cold Fusion at the time. Um, and uh, then I, I was part of a, a startup formed by Intermix Expats, where, again, it was all PHP and MySQL. And then I was working uh, briefly as a developer at Demand Media as, uh, as a PHP and MySQL developer before I moved into product development instead. 
So you've programmed more than more than anything else then professionally, it sounds like. Uh, or, yeah. Or close to that, at least. Yeah. I mean, I probably, I started professionally programming around 2002, and I didn't stop professionally programming until around 2008. So it's at least half of my working life. Huh. The Radio Shack story is the first time I've ever heard that, ever. So it it, was, um, have it you was, ever met someone that's also learned to program from Radio Shack? No. I, I believe it was, you know, my parents were nerdy enough that they liked to buy overpriced gadgetry from Radio Shack. And they befriended one of the salespeople there and found out that she was also an accomplished basic programmer. And so I, I don't think it was like a Radio Shack payment. I think it was a paying this woman directly, like when you hire a camp counselor as a babysitter kind of thing. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, maybe they missed out. They had like a whole line of business they could have gotten in. Your right. parents discovered. Yeah, they, uh, a missed business model. I think that's probably true. <laughs> so when's the last time you programmed? How many years ago now? Um, professionally, it's probably been since 2009, um, where when I was at demand, although my job wasn't to be a, a developer, uh, when we sometimes had kind of skunk works projects and I didn't want to wait for developer resources to be allocated, I would just do it myself. Um, but then when I was at Macworld, uh, as a writer there, I also built the tool that we used to organize article assignments and things. And so that was, I wasn't being paid specifically to program that thing, but I did that. And then I still do development on my own time. Oh yeah. What's the, what's the, your like a uh, hobby project that you've done that you like? Uh, I mean, most recently was before I had, uh, my current full-time job at Midroll, I was doing podcast ads on my own and that was through podlexing. And so everything that I did on the development side was, um, to make, to make myself uh, able to be lazier. So it was building more and more tools to automate every aspect of the podcast ad booking and billing process. <laughs> I think the name Podlexing is super funny. It so, was named by Glenn Fleischman, uh, who takes tremendous pride in having named it. <laughs> Do you like it? Or did you like it at the time? Do you like it in hindsight? I liked it for about five seconds, and then as soon as I registered the domain, I was like, what have I done? But uh, I stuck with it. What are you going to do? Yeah, it kind of has the feel of that name, the kind that... that that, that would, you know, be good at first. Really, I wanted anything else. Like, I was trying to get any other variation that also had my name. Why it had my name, I don't know, but I decided that it did. So I was like, Lex Casting, taken. Um, and so once I couldn't do Lex Casting, I, I was like, Glenn, I, this business is doomed. Before I even started, I can't get Lex Casting. He's like, well, what about Podlexing? Said, Brilliant. And so then it stuck. <laughs> Go figure that Podlexing hadn't already been taken. Kind of amazing. Now, this is a total <laughs> side note here, but worth mentioning. Uh, one of my advertisers once asked if uh, I would create a voiceover for them for their uh, their Sirius XM radio ads, and I did. Um, they just liked my voice when I was on the phone with them, I guess, and so then they asked me to do that ad for them. And uh, now I've done probably 50 or 60 ads for this advertiser, which is a company called, well, I'm not trying to advertise them, so forget it. But they... Um, in the ad, the copy that they wrote for me said, Hi, I'm Lex Friedman. I run my own business called Podlexing. So sometimes now when I'm doing my job, I will interact with people. And it's not an ad for me, right? It's an ad for this other web service. But I'll, I'll talk to people like, I recognize your name from somewhere. And then when they figure it out, they're like, oh, you're the Podlexing guy. So I don't know how well the ad is working for the actual advertiser, but it's doing okay for me, I guess. <laughs> so Podlexing and your theme song are now kind of stuck to your shoe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I apologize. I don't know if I'm making the world a better place, but I'm at least changing it. So let's talk about the uh, the voiceover stuff. So you've got a pretty good podcast radio voice. Did you have to work on that, or did it kind of come naturally? Uh, I have not worked on it. 
uh, and thank you, and I, as, as do you, by the way. Um, but it's, uh, I try to be good at taking compliments. When I take compliments for my voice, it's sort of to me like when people, you know, compliment me on being tall. It's, it's true, I guess, but I, I don't feel like I had any real control over it. Yeah, I, I get that. The, uh, the thing that you do, I think, when you're on podcasts that I've paid attention to is that you keep the pace of your speaking, I think, at the right speed. I tend to go a little bit too slow, not to get behind the scenes here. That's interesting. That is the first time I've heard that feedback, but I will think about it now. Really? That's fascinating to me. So I always figured that you were intentionally pacing at about a given rate, um, mainly because I pace a little bit slower naturally than you do, and and I think that your pace is about what I try to go for. Interesting. What I always worry about, actually, during podcast recording time is, well, the people who are going to be playing this back at faster speeds, am I going too fast, or can I go go just fast enough that it's not worth it to them to play it back at faster than 1x playback? I think they're kind of like the people that jailbreak their iPhone. You just can't worry about them. You know, that's fair. That's a pretty good analysis, actually. (laughs) You know, whatever. If they're going to speed it up, they can deal with the consequences of it. (laughs) I have... I would never speed up a podcast. I know a lot of people do, and uh, maybe I'm missing out, but just not my thing. The um, the people who speed up my the Daily Lex podcast, uh, they they have a whole different interpretation of what the theme song is. <laughs> it's like your kids singing it for you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. So so let's talk about this job opening that you've got at Midroll. What are you looking sure. for? So well, what's Midroll first? So Midroll is a is a podcast uh, distribution. A podcast creation and advertising network. So we own and operate about 20 shows, and then we sell ads for those 20 shows plus another 100 or 110 or so other shows. Um, and it's about connecting podcasters with advertisers. Uh, it doesn't feel, when you describe it that way, like a, tr- a tech company. I mean, obviously, podcasts are technology, and so there's there's a big tech piece there. But what makes us a tech company is, again, I think because of my own personal desire to have computers do most of the rote work for me, uh, we do have a pretty extensive back end. And this is one that's built in Ruby on Rails. And I will admit, I have uh, I don't know anything about Ruby on Rails. I mean, I've looked at it a little bit, but I have never written a line of, of code uh, in ROR, as I believe the hip folks call it. Um, <laughs> oh, man. But so the uh, – but this back end that we have – Really manages a lot of stuff. It's it's the tool that advertisers, podcasters, and uh, our fin- our finance team all use. So, for example, I can go in to see. Um, oh, and I guess the salespeople because that's me. So I can go in and see what shows have what availability and how many downloads are those spots going to get and what are the rates and all that. I can also do things like generate rate cars that have specific shows in them or search our shows by demographic data. Show me all of our podcasts where at least fifty percent of the audience is females over forty. Uh, and generate, you know, sales collateral, I guess, based on that. But then our podcasters can log in and say, see, here's the script that you have for the different ads for these weeks. Uh, then they can go in and upload their air checks so that we can have advertisers log in and see, here's how many downloads your specific episode that you bought got, and here's the clip of so-and-so reading your spot on her show. Um, and it's also the back end that powers, uh, you know, um, Various elements of our front-facing websites. So our front-facing websites, we have two right now, midroll.com and earwolf.com, earwolf being the, the comedy podcast network that we run. Uh, they're both built on WordPress. Midroll, I think, midroll.com looks really great. Earwolf, we know, is in, in desperate need of an update. But uh, the midroll backend powers some of the 
dynamic content on the, the WordPress midroll.com site so that people can filter shows, you know, show me all your different podcasts and show me the, just the ones that are about technology or the ones that are about parenting or whatever it is. It sounds pretty nice. It's the, the back end that runs the business. Like, yeah, so it's, it's it, hugely helpful. If someone was, uh, it's like, what are the things you don't like about it? Cause that was a pretty good list of things you like about it. What, what could be better? Well, uh, the reality is we don't have a full-time developer, so it's always been built by – really, the, the main mid-roll backend has been built by one contractor, um, and we just feel like we have enough technology need now that we need we need somebody in-house. Um, the a thing that I don't like about it is I wouldn't call it a bug because it wasn't ever spec'd out more specifically, but it's a flaw. So right now, this is going to get super complicated and nerdy, so I hope that I have the right audience here. It's kind of, kind of a shtick here. So, so right now – if I build a proposal for, let's say, WTF with Mark Marin, and I say, here's this proposal advertiser, and because you're willing to spend this much money, I'm going to discount each individual spot slightly. So the July 5th spot that would normally, I'm making up all these prices, by the way, but the July 5th spot that would normally be $8,000 for you is $7,000. Uh, that's fine. Now I build another proposal for another advertiser, and then that advertiser is only going to spend uh, less overall. They're only going to buy one spot, so they have to pull, pay the full list rate. So in their proposal, which, again, is going to have that same July 5th date, that same mid-roll spot on July 5th because the first advertiser didn't say yes yet, I change it and say, okay, here's your proposal, and that spot's going to be $8,000 for you. Now, in my back end, the... The proposal for advertiser one has changed the price of that spot. The July 5th spot now shows $8,000. So there's, there's only one record for each individual spot on each individual show. And if you change the rates in a given proposal, you're changing it there in the, in the, the main record, the one definitive record for that specific spot's pricing and availability. So what I'd like is to decouple that so that, uh, there's only, one master price for each spot. And when I'm building out different proposals, they're all offshoots, and it's only when a proposal is activated that it goes back and updates the main record. Now, I don't think that in itself is a uh, a significant development challenge, but because the system has been built with exactly the opposite approach, it's more complicated to, to decouple it throughout everything, if that makes sense. Yeah, you need you need quotes of some exactly. sort. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So that's one super specific example, but it's one that comes up all the time. Because what it really means, it's not that we're charging people the wrong prices most of the time. It's that when advertiser one comes back and says, I'll take it, now I have to have somebody who manually looks at the PDF we had sent that person and make sure that the prices in the plane we activate match because the system won't do it automatically right now. Yeah, PDFs, boo. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I will say it's, what's nice is that our backend generates all different kinds of PDFs for me. So if I need a, a rate sheet, which I had mentioned, if I need a pitch deck, it can do that. And I can tell it, you know, put in these shows and put in this advertiser's name. And it's the kind of thing that everybody, even five or ten years ago, probably even five, uh, that people were doing by hand. You know, it's like, well, let me generate a new pitch deck just for this advertiser and let me do all this stuff by hand. And being able to just check a few boxes and fill out a form is so nice. So how do you think about inventory when it comes to podcast ads? So, like, let's take this show. Uh, and let's pretend it was being uh, sold to advertisers and uh, one spot had been sold. Uh, is the second spot worth less than the first? Is the third worth what, less than the second? Like, is there some ratio of spots to show that, that uh, works or doesn't? That's not exactly how we think about it. So we divide shows into a couple different spots. We have pre-rolls, mid-rolls, and post-rolls. Uh, for us, we, we cap the different spots at different lengths. So a pre-roll is typically going to be 20 max 30 seconds, and some shows will cap it at 20 seconds. A mid-roll spot, we're going to say, is no shorter than 60 seconds with no cap. 
So we charge more for mid-rolls than pre-rolls, even though a lot of people, before they talk to me, assume the opposite. The pre-roll, you know, people are like, well, it's right in front, so you're definitely going to hear it. But we're finding when we do our listener surveys that people are listening to almost every episode, and they're listening to almost every episode almost all the way through. So we're not worried about people hearing the spot. So we charge a little bit more for the mid-roll spot since it's triple the length. And then we charge a little bit less for the pre-roll, and then we charge a little bit less for the post-roll since that's at the end, and that we know we're not going to get 100% listening to. Um, so each show sets its own inventory. So, you know, WTF has uh, two pre-rolls, two mid-rolls, and a post-roll. And, uh, you know, um, another show might have just one pre-roll and three mid-rolls, and one might have no pre-rolls and a couple mid-rolls. So it's... They're, the pricing is kind of independent of how many advertisers have had. Some shows sell out a whole lot, and some shows don't. Gotcha. But but you stick to a format per show. So, like, the, the show creates the inventory given whatever format it decides to go for, and then that format's going to yield, you know, plus its audience is going to yield some value by spot. And That's that's exactly right. And so for us, the, the big thing is how many downloads does the show get? Um, but yeah, the podcasters tell us, here's what inventory I want to make available. And they also tell us, here's what we want to charge for it. So, you know, I, that way I can always disclaim it to people like, man, that's expensive. Well, you have to blame Mark Marin. He set the prices. <laughs> so what's the, um, what are listener levels like now in podcast lands? So I don't mean for specific shows, but for a super popular general interest show or a super popular tech show to a, you know, niche right. show. What's the what's the order of magnitude look like? Our su- our super popular comedy shows are doing somewhere around three hundred thousand downloads an episode. Wow! Um, so you know some of the NPR esque shows that get huge are doing five hundred thousand or even a million downloads an episode. Um, a super popular tech show, in my experience, that's going to be limited to the tech shows that I've had connection to, uh, top out at around seventy thousand downloads. And so is the like, let's try to normalize value. So is uh, I've heard that tech shows, even though they have, say, an order of magnitude less uh, audience, given the numbers you just said, than a popular non-tech show could right. could command as much or better on the advertising rates. Is that true? Yeah, you know, we price everything on a CPM basis. Uh, and not everybody's familiar with that term. So CPM, it's cost per mil, where mil means thousand, because people are nerds. <laughs> and uh, so... When we use the download as the multiplier, so if it's a if it's a ten dollar CPM and it's a show with a hundred thousand downloads, then it's a thousand dollars for that spot because you take the hundred thousand divided by a thousand, multiply by ten. Um, so we do charge higher CPMs for specific kinds of tech shows. If it's a tech show that's you know just kind of here's some general interest technology information, I'll give you an example: MacWorld. Or uh, the iMore show, for those, we typically use rates that are very similar to our general interest or comedy shows. But for a show that's, you know, let's really talk about nerdy development things, uh, this show or debug or uh, stuff like that, that's where we can command higher CPMs. Um, and it's, it's partially to help balance, you know, supply and demand. And it's partially just because it's, it's such a, a valuable audience that's willing and ready to spend on the niche advertisers who are targeting them. Yeah, I guess there are there are only so many developers, and they they control a lot of money. I think right. that's true. And it's, I mean, you can only charge what the show can get, right? If the show's not selling well, then you have to change the price. And so it's what's nice is you hear a lot of the same advertisers again and again, not just on the tech shows, but especially there. And that's because the ads really work. It's the only thing I've ever sold as podcast ads. I don't have any training or experience in there, and. uh 
Uh, I don't know. So it's uh, what I like about it is we have so many direct response advertisers, the ones who are looking to see, you know, right. is my offer code being used and am I making money from that ad? And the fact that they keep coming back tells us that people are actually listening to and acting on these ads. It seems like repeat sponsorship is a hugely important idea that, like, the first time or three that someone advertises, the likelihood they're going to get tons of action seems low. And then it'd grow into the, I don't know, the third to seventh time. But is that true or is it my imagining? Tell that, that to every advertiser I'm talking to, man. <laughs> it's, it's definitely true, especially when you're giving out an offer code. Um, you, you're now requiring the listener to remember two things. And, I mean, people have listened to podcasts. They've listened to radio. You're not listening to the show to hear the ad for Squarespace. But when Squarespace comes up, especially if it's your first time hearing it, which I know is nobody's hearing Squarespace ads for the first time anymore, but if it is your first time, you have to both remember Squarespace, you have to remember that you want it when you're going to build your next website, and then you also have to remember what the offer code is. And that's, that's a lot to ask of you, which is one of the reasons why Squarespace does so much repetition. I try really hard not to sell one-off spots because it's even on the biggest show, if, if you really want people to hear and remember it, you've, you've got to do more. Um, the advice I tend to give to first-time advertisers, because I understand the nervousness, right? There's very little experience in podcast advertising. Everybody I talk to all day, and I'm on the phone all day, they all say, you know, I, to tell you the truth, I, I haven't done much in the way of podcasting. <laughs> no, nobody has. Don't worry. But the, the advice I always give is if you have budget for 10 spots, it makes a lot more sense to buy three spots each on three shows than one spot each on 10 shows, because the instinct tends to be the other way. Like, let me just spray as many shows as I can, but it's all about the repetition. I'm going into New York City this morning as well. Oh, really? Yeah. How often do you go over there? Uh, I try to make it less than once a week, so I think it averages to once every other week. Hmm. I'm surprised it's even that much. Do you have to see people in person for the for the job? Yeah, it's, it's glad-handing certain advertisers, and actually, just as often right now, it's, it's recruiting new podcasters. Like uh, a couple months ago, I went into the Hayden Planetarium to meet with Neil deGrasse Tyson, and now we sell his show. So it was a worthwhile trip, but I always view it as a chore getting into the city. Yeah. How far do you live from the city right now? I'm in central New Jersey, so the bus ride, out, when there's no traffic, the bus ride is like almost exactly an hour from where my stop is to Port Authority. Uh, if there's any traffic, though, it can like double pretty quickly. That's not bad. Right. We, we just uh, moved from Chicago to northern Connecticut, so it's about two and a half hours from here. Gotcha. But my uh, wife and daughter went down with my mother for a couple days, mother and aunt, actually. But, oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah, not, not to work, so. <laughs> they're not minding the commute. They're having fun. Yeah, I understand. The journey is the reward. <laughs> exactly. So do you know the uh, the Squares, how Squarespace got into podcast advertising story, and can you share it? Uh, I can share it, but I don't know it. Um, <laughs> the, here's, I don't know the, the original foray into it. But, you know, it's funny. I was, I, hoping, I was hoping I could give you credit for, for making <laughs> Breaking the, the story? I, we could probably find out. I was talking uh, months ago to Marco Armand about this, about how can Squarespace, I mean, I am totally appreciative. This wasn't a unhappiness about it, but how can Squarespace afford to spend so much on podcast advertising? And I think it's that it's a really, well, first, the ads clearly work for them because they're, they're not the kind of people to throw good money after bad. But I think it's, that their business is brilliantly structured, right? It's it's clearly a high-margin business. And you think, what's the typical customer costing them who doesn't have that much in bandwidth and maybe doesn't need any support all year long? I can't imagine that the, the technical cost of hosting one website that's, you know, low visitation is more than 15 bucks a year. 
and you're paying about eight bucks a month. So the amount you can spend to acquire that customer is, is pretty high. And the switching costs are high to, to leave once you're there. So they think you're going to stick around for a while. If you need support, maybe it's an hour of support. Maybe that's another $10 that you cost them for the year. It's uh it's a pretty good margin. So I get why they can spend a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I think the ads work. I, I think, uh, I mean, I don't know how much their entire budget is. It's got to be quite a bit, but uh, at least in terms of awareness, they seem to have done a good job. And I would say, you know, they did a, a Super Bowl ad this past year. And I have to imagine that dollar for dollar, the podcast ads were way more effective. <laughs> I would hope you'd say that. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So back to the mid-roll job. So yes. uh, uh, are you looking so, – so tell tell me more about what you're looking for. I, mean, I think the, what, this, what the system does is pretty clear. So what portion of the job is, say, development operations, kind of keeping everything running versus developing new stuff versus fixing old stuff? You know, Sure. What's so like? the let me first quote to you for a second from an email I wrote to a couple of people who emailed me about the job, um, since we never posted a formal job listing for it, because, I don't know, we're a modern, hip internet company. But so our back end, as I mentioned, is built entirely in Ruby on Rails. It's the system we use for tracking podcast ad inventory, advertisers, sales, and everything else for our business. So the sales team uses it, and podcasters, and advertisers, and on and on. And those WordPress sites. So what we're looking for is a tech person with strong product and even project uh, management skills to create plans and execute the coding necessary to achieve our goals. Um, so, well, you know, the list of projects that that we have on the radar is kind of never ending, and I'm probably the the worst offender in terms of adding new feature requests to the the never ending list. Um, I'm just calling up, uh, we use Asana and GitHub, GitHub for bug tracking and Asana for feature tracking. Um, I'm just calling up some of the stuff that we have on the list. Um, so, you know, there's, I, I mentioned proposal building and, uh, that's a large part of the job and our system for building proposals for advertisers is already pretty robust, but I'd like it to be robustier, um, <laughs> you know, so that it's like right now. If an advertiser says, give me a 50K proposal and a 100K proposal, I have to build the – it's two separate proposals. And what I'd love to do is be able to say, you know, duplicate this first one that's already at 100K, and then I'll hack some things off, and then you can approve either one. But then I have two different, you know, holds on the same spots for the same advertiser. So so building multiple proposals for the same advertiser could be better. Uh, I'd love to have some smarter tools for that. Uh, and we talked a bit about our my ability to search by demographic data, and as good as it is, it still could be way better. Because right now I can say, you know, include in my available pool of podcasts just shows that have, you know, at least 50% uh, male audience. But I would love to also be able to sort all my shows and see everything and, you know, really slice and dice the data in, in cooler ways so that we could we could do more uh, for advertisers in terms of figuring out what shows have what kinds of audiences. Um we're also looking for, you know, there's always need for new reports, right? More ways to look at what we're doing and how well we're doing and all that fun stuff. And I know developers who hate building reports, and I know developers who, who love them. So hopefully you'll love them because we got a lot. There's someone that loves them? Yeah. Well, <laughs> I didn't know that. If, if you love the, the query crafting process, yeah. um, the nice thing is, you know, what I hated when I worked full-time as a developer was building stuff that you knew was never going to get used. When people were like, oh, this is totally going to be great. We're going to need this. And so take two weeks and work on this thing. And then, like, they look at it one time like, oh, that's not very interesting. I hated that. Um, but, you know, the, the reports that I have, you know, sales by advertiser or sales by show. It's stuff that, you know, I look at all day, every day. Um, 
I like the or, two ends of the spectrum when it comes to reporting. So either kind of dump it into a table that uh, you can pivot on using some, I don't know, some tool like Excel or something similar, or something that really does a lot of work in terms of uh, finding exceptions and and doing summarization that's not just a simple pivot on the core data. Anything in between those two, oh, major pain. Yeah, I, I totally hear you. The you know the there are some sexier projects in the pipeline, but they're not public yet, so I can't I can't figure out a good way to talk about them. <laughs> but um, cool products that would end up having customer facing implications are uh, certainly on the horizon, and for this quarter. And uh, you know I mentioned that our Earwolf site needs a redesign. We're not looking for a, a developer who's also going to do the design. Although if you do that, feel free to you know let me know. But you know we we have a designer on staff. Um, but, uh, you know, we're going to be redoing that site. And it is it is a WordPress site that has just, uh, you know, dozens of custom chunks of things, you know, so it can handle concepts like episodes. It, we're not using any built-in or existent podcast plugin. It's all hand-done. Um, but we're going to want to redo that and redo it in a in a, an easily themable way, which obviously WordPress helps with a bit, um, so that we can potentially have other verticals outside of the Earwolf comedy network. So it sounds like, I mean, the... It sounds like the current system is pretty decent, and you guys have tons of plans, and it would be someone working mostly on their own, right, to do this right. work? Right. You know, uh, my guess is the position will either will, will likely end up reporting to the CEO for the time being, um, who's a good friend of mine named Adam. Uh, and it's, it's going to be largely self-driven. You know, the product requests are going to come from me and from Adam and probably from a couple other people at the company. And then it's going to be really be turned to this person. And we're not calling it strictly a developer job. The, the title that we have is director of technology with the, the hope that we're going to find somebody who's comfortable. You know, we say, here's what we need. And then they're going to come up with some kind of product spec for us to review and say, yep, that's right. And then they're going to go ahead and execute. And they're still going to have access to, you know, the freelance developers we've used. We use some great, you know, really just one for the most part, but a great contract Rails developer who makes way more freelancing than he we could afford to pay him full time because he's got so many clients that he works for and he's very expensive <laughs> um but uh you know somebody who can really kind of own the the development process including the the actual project side of it is is the ideal scenario for us so sort of like a player coach someone that's been around for a bit that knows how to think through what's needed not just how to do it that kind of idea right and i'll tell you I mean, just in full honesty the the concern or fear that I have is, um, you know, if a lot of, I mean, I, I know this is not a popular term, but a lot of rock star developers, um, they have many options. And I think that what we do is sexy, but I don't know that our technological needs are as sexy as, you know, saying I'm going to go work for, I don't know, giant internet company here. So the, the code that we need, the challenge isn't, you know, make this able to scale to support uh, 100,000 concurrent users. Um, but it is, you know, support many, many millions of downloads per week of these popular podcasts. So it's got something going for it. I think there's a demographic that would like the job a lot, honestly. Yeah, I, I hope so. Yeah, because, I mean, I think that there's a group of people that may not be, um, you know, the next CS, uh, uh, 
you know, famous innovators of, like you said, something like a, a new approach to scaling a particularly difficult problem, but are more generalist guys that are pretty good programmers and have a pretty good business head on them and can manage things okay and, you know, are analysts to some degree and, and uh, want to kind of put all of those skills to use to make something that people use that they know. I think that's a thing. Yeah. Um, I think that they're, they're not cheap and there, there aren't a lot of them and they have jobs easily. So that's the thing. Right. I mean, your, your problems more than theirs, but yeah. I, mean, I should mention too, that, you know, that this would be a full-time job. We, you know, if you happen to be in LA where the office is headquartered, we'd love that, but it's certainly one that we're open to having a remote employee for. And, uh, you know, it has benefits and all those good things that you'd expect. How big of a company is it right now? We're at about 20 people. Oh, wow. That's uh, that's at least twice as big as I thought it would be. Yeah, so we've got um, we've got the the sales force, which is going to be me, and then I've got uh, some salespeople on the east coast, some salespeople on the west coast, and various kind of ad ops people who handle the execution. Then we've got the finance people who handle the billing and accounting and all that stuff, and then we've got the whole podcast production arm, engineers and editors and things. And then uh, there's our, we call them the artist care experts, or ACEs for short, but the people who handle the relationships with the podcasters themselves. <laughs> Who's the bigger pain, the podcasters or the advertisers? I refuse to answer that question. <laughs> They're all, they're, they're both, all lovely. they're both great. Yeah. It's like, that's like, who's your favorite kid? <laughs> yeah. Well, really, it's like, who's your least favorite kid, right? But they're, no, they're, they're, honestly, uh, they're, and this is a true answer, even though it's going to sound a tiny bit like BS, but they're both, um, I enjoy working with the podcasters and with the advertisers. Um, and I think what distinguishes us and what we do is that we just, we go to both sides with pure honesty. It's much easier to keep track of than trying to sell anybody on something that's bogus. But um, they're both actually, in our experience, very accommodating and very uh, true to what they want to do. Like the podcasters, we give full veto rights. If there's an advertiser that doesn't work for them, we don't want them to, to voice an ad for it. And the advertisers know that they can't um, give us copy that's going to make the podcasters uncomfortable to, to recite. So both sides are really kind of supportive of us and of what the other wants to do. So it's, it's, it's pretty fun. I think that when a uh, podcaster does an ad read for someone that they don't like that much, it's one of the funniest things that happens in podcasting. Really yeah. funny. I yeah. forget the – you don't sell the Accidental Tech Podcast show, do you? Uh, I used to, but I no longer do. <laughs> so they um, – this would be funnier if I remembered who the advertiser was, but they occasionally have uh, an advertiser that has the goofiest read you've ever heard. That uh, something about uh, they want ninjas and rock stars and shout wow. out to the whatevers. Oh man! If you sold it, that'd be that'd be hilarious to me because it's such a funny ad, and Marco clearly has no interest in reading it. <laughs> I my guess is I sold it, but I can't think of who it would have been. Um, I sold the show up until very recently, and um, it's it's sold out far enough that anything you heard in the past you know eight months was probably my doing. <laughs> no kidding. So that show seems to be, uh, next to, to John Gruber's show, the, the most popular based on how often I hear other people mention it that are in the tech world. Is yeah, you know, at least in the, in the Apple tech world, those two shows are, are fairly neck and neck. Um, the last time I looked closely, ATP was a tiny bit larger, but, you know, wow, not, like not even by an order, a standard deviation um, larger, but uh, they are very big and it's a very, you know, it's a, it's a niche audience. And I used to sell both those shows. I sold the talk show and I sold ATP. Um, the talk show and ATP now both took their ad sales independent. Um, 
And I, I mean, I get it. Marco's posted plenty about podcast networks, so I think you can sort of see where his is at there. Um, it's Marco is actually the guy who motivated me to take the job at Midroll because I was kind of debating: do I go on my own and sell podcast ads independent, or do I do I join Midroll? And he's like, "Well, you guys are like the, uh, you know, the, the cute couple who everybody knows is going to go to the prom together. You, you have to get together at some point, so just do it now." Um, and so you know, that wasn't the the final push I needed, but it, it certainly made it happen. Um, it was one of the, the last motivations I needed to say yes and take on the role. But um, I would say over time, you know, it's a show that sells really well, right? Both ATP and the talk show were sold out for the entire time I, I sold them. Um, we ended up adding a third spot on ATP because it was sold out so far in advance and we wanted to try to add a little bit more room for advertisers. And the guys were, truth be told, extremely nervous about adding a third spot and would people freak out. I'm like, guys, your show is five hours long. I think you can fit in a third 60-second <laughs> spot. Um, so there were no hard feelings. Like I, I never felt fired by either of those guys when they decided to go independent. Um, and it's just like, I get it. Their shows sell really well. So if they can keep, you know, the commission that we would make as a company for themselves, I, I can understand the motivation. Yeah. Hey, we should do an ad. Speaking of, it's the only ad. Let's do it. <clears throat> so, uh, the Ruby on Rails podcast today is sponsored by CodeShip. So I'm going to involve you if you don't mind. Do you know what continuous integration servers are? I do not. All right. Well, let me tell you about them. CodeShip is one of them. So CodeShip makes continuous delivery simple. This continuous delivery term is new. I wonder what the story is with that. Anyhow, they allow you to set up continuous integration in a few easy steps, and your software will automatically deploy when your tests have passed. So here's how it works. Say you've got a, uh, a repository on GitHub, and every time, let's say it's mid-rolls, every time you commit to it, you want to automatically build the app and then run the entire test suite. Um, and then if all of that passes, everything looks good, you want to automatically then deploy the code out to your production system. Gotcha. Um, that's what continuous integration is, and that's what CodeShip does. They have uh, great support for multiple languages and test frameworks like Ruby on Rails and, and RSpec or Minitest test unit, um, uh, but not just Rails. Uh, basically, every language and, and framework that you'd be familiar with, they support. You can easily integrate with either GitHub for code hosting or Bitbucket and then deploy to wherever your servers are, whether it's a cloud service like Heroku or AWS or Nojitsu, uh, or your own servers uh, hosted yourself. They offer a free plan that uh, takes about three minutes to set up, so you can check it out. Uh, when you want to sign up for, uh, for a reel, uh, you can get 20% off a uh, plan for three months using the code 5x5RUBY. They blog at blog.codeship.io. You can read that to learn a lot more about the company and what they're all about. And on uh, the uh, main page of their web uh, website, codeship.io, they've got a video that kind of gives an overview of what they're all about. So I, I've used it. I use it right now. And uh, it's quite a good service. They uh, improve it quite quickly, too. And uh, if you haven't taken a look uh, at CodeShip for continuous integration or haven't taken a look at continuous integration at all, I recommend you try them out. So thanks to CodeShip for sponsoring the Ruby on Rails podcast. Nice. That was nice. How was that? Was that right? I, uh, I mean, I, I don't listen to podcast ads all day anymore. There's, you know, part of our artist care expert team. They, they'll do that. They'll listen to a bunch of spots each week and offer coaching. That was good. I thought you nailed it. Really? Yeah. Give me, give me one tip. So if I could have done that a bit better, what would I have done? 
Um, you know, it's always ideal if you have any kind of personal experience that you can relay. Like you mentioned, they're good at fixing things um, or, or, or improving things. So I always like when you can point to an example because that's when you'll get more conversational. My advice to podcasters is always try to mix, the, assuming the, the advertiser is okay with it, to try to mix the, the scripted part with something that's uh, where they're going to just go off the cuff because that makes the, the whole read a little bit more organic, less likely to get skipped, which is always my big fear. Yeah. I wouldn't have skipped your read, though. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah, usually, so usually I have other programmers on, and, and uh, given that all of the sponsors are always programming <laughs> stuff, it's pretty so, easy to talk about any of it. So it's my fault. <laughs> no, no, I mean, because usually we just sit and have a conversation about the topic, uh, you know, like continuous right. integration or whatever, but it's not it's not a super interesting topic by itself to talk about. Gotcha. <laughs> really? Uh, anyhow. All right, so... Uh, we can go one of two directions. So sure. here's what I want to do. I want to pause before we go in the other direction and give the the sort of final plug on how to get in touch with you for this job because you're going to get some interest, and I think it's a really good job for the right type of person, so I want to make sure we don't lose out on that. So where should they uh, send what if they're interested in this job? So the easiest thing to do is to shoot me an email directly, and uh, I would say put director of technology in the subject line. And send it to Lex, L-E-X, at midroll.com. So it's Lex at M-I-D-R-O-L-L.com. Um, I, basically, because of my because of the lack of in-house tech expertise and because of my own tech experience, I'm kind of the, the hiring manager for the role, even though the role might not report directly to me. Would it interact with you much? But uh, I would love to hear from folks. And so, yeah, just, uh, just put that subject line in there, Director of Technologies. So I suspect that some number of people that would be interested would be interested because they're into podcasting. Yeah. Um, you know, that's sort of a thing, and there's a demographic that are into it just as it's uh, as, uh, as a hobby, I guess. Right. Um, how much do you think the job would be the sort of the inside baseball dream that people would have that are into podcasting? That's an interesting question. Um, I mean, they would certainly see a whole lot more about the – the, how the sausage is made of the podcasting world, um, especially for monetized podcasts. Uh, if, if you're in L.A., you're going to see talent coming in and out of the studio all the time if that's something that's exciting for you. Um, I was in L.A. last week and got to have an impromptu meeting with Weird Al Yankovic because he happened to be in the studio recording a uh, guest appearance on the show. Um, but all our Earwolf hosts are in there each week, and they're bringing in their friends and their guests, so that's fun. Um, was he funny if, in person? Weird Al. Yeah, actually, you know, I've, I've, I've met Al a bunch of times, so he already knew who I was. But I would say he's, he's understated Al in person. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, reserved Al in person. Not shy or anything, but just uh, not willing to pretend to be what you might expect and not what you would expect in terms of, like, not, again, not, like, introverted or anything, but just kind of soft-spoken and polite and respectful. I've heard him interviewed. He's a pretty good interview, I think. Yeah. He's, he's an interesting guy. The first time I met him, I was interviewing him uh, at the age of 15 for the uh, local teen section of our newspaper in really? Pennsylvania. Yeah. Huh. Then you, the story is, so I interviewed him for this paper. I spent like 45 minutes with him backstage before a show. And then a couple years later, uh, a friend had backstage passes to an Al concert. So my name's not on the list. It's my friend's name with a plus one. And we go backstage after the show, and Al looks at me and he says, Lex Friedman, Hershey, Pennsylvania. So uh, a pretty good memory on that guy. Wow. I could imagine the uh, backstage scene at a Weird Al concert being a punchline to lots of jokes. Is it? Or is it? <laughs> yeah. 
it is, again, it is extremely reserved. You know, it's, he's vegan, so it's like, here's this giant spread, and here's the vegan-only section with a, denoted by a special tablecloth, and he's a teetotaler, so, you know, the band has some booze, but Al's, like, sipping iced tea. It's, it's pretty kind of hilarious. Oh, man, a vegan teetotaler. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, see, that is what yeah, I'd expect. Get that. The, but that is sort of exactly <laughs> what I'd expect for the backstage scene at a Weird Al concert. Something yeah. kind of weird. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's been it's an experience. I've now been backstage maybe four times, and it's it's always the same. It's kind of he he tries to do a receiving line after each show to to sign stuff for fans, or whatever, and it's. Like, it's the same thing I feel at They Might Be Giants concerts. I love going to They Might Be Giants concerts, but I have to look around the audience and make sure, like, I'm, I'm not one of them, right? <laughs> right. So, so my guess on this job is that, is that um, the fact that it's in podcasting is one of the reasons you're going to get someone interested in it. So, yeah, because anyone that has the skills that you mentioned can get a job lots of different places. They're not going to have, you know. That they're going to have offers. Um, but I think that there are a lot, a decent number of people at least that would be interested enough in sort of seeing the behind the scenes and meeting Weird Al and talking to you and whatever that, uh, that that could kind of carry the day. That's my guess. Well, I appreciate it. And I'll tell you, that, you know, when we're pitching various people on joining us, the, the, the story that we tell, which, you know, I genuinely believe, although again, I know this is going to sound slightly hokey, is that these are the jobs that we have to offer right now are the only jobs like them in the world. There are there are very few companies that are representing podcasts in general, and then of the companies that are, there are very few that are representing the shows of the the magnitude that we are. You know, WTF with Mark Maron or Comedy Bang Bang or Star Talk Radio with Neil deGrasse Tyson. Like these are these are big shows, and um, so people are really into podcasts and really into media and tend to get excited because yeah, that's that's our situation. It's it's a unique place to be. All right, so let's go with that bet and talk for the last handful of minutes before we get off about the uh, uh, about some inside baseball stuff. So, if you had uh, a free hour and were to listen to a podcast having nothing to do with your job at all, what would you listen to? What show? That's a really good question. Um, is it cheating if I mention at least one or two that I sell myself? No, you can yeah, you can say so, whatever you want. So, you know, uh, Max Temkin, the co-creator of Cards Against Humanity, um, just uh, started a podcast a couple weeks ago called Lost Rewatch, where he and a buddy are rewatching the TV series Lost and um, then doing kind of, not a commentary track, but a, a feedback on each episode. And... I loved Lost when it started. It was a big passion for me. I was obsessed. I thought about it way too much. I ran a website that was all about Lost and analysis. And then as the show progressed, especially when we got closer to the uh, it's en- the end of its run, I got very angry with it. Max did not have that experience. He was content with how it concluded, where I was not. Uh, so listening to somebody who already knows where it's going and uh, isn't angry because of it is a very interesting take for me. And we happen to represent that show, but... Um, it's brand new, and uh, the first couple episodes have really been impressive. I've never heard him on anything before, but boy, is he an interesting guy uh, on the internet. You know, oh, totally. Know. Boy, uh, one of my favorites. Yeah, uh, I, got, yeah. I, I think he could do a show on just about anything, and I'd be interested. I didn't know that that new show existed. So what was yeah. the name of it again? It's Lost Rewatch. Lost. It has an incredible logo. It has an incredible theme song that kind of works from the theme music from the original show. Does it involve uh, you singing in graphic? <laughs> yeah, it's your lost rewatch. Uh, it's um, it's also uh, I didn't say his other name because I can't ever remember how to pronounce the last name, but it's Patrick Klepek from Giant Bomb. 
uh, Johnny Bombcast is the co-host. Uh, but it's that one's brand new, and I, I really enjoy it. I'm just looking now at what other podcasts I have. Um, I do listen to WTF and Comedy Bang Bang every week, despite the fact that I sell them. Uh, I'm just a fan. And I'll say one show that I listen to that I don't sell uh, it's with a competitor is Penn's Sunday School. I'm a big Penn Gillette fan. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think that his podcast now is as good as his one that he had a couple years back, which was called... Uh, Pen Radio, and that show I really enjoyed, and it uh, affected my life in various ways, changed my perspective on things. Uh, Pen Sunday School is a little bit sillier, uh, which is fine, but I also I still really enjoy it. I think that Pen is a very educated nut, and I enjoy hearing what he calls his nut point of view. Yeah, he's super smart and kind of crazy. I agree. Yes, yes, <laughs> with both of those. Um, who do you think is the most talented uh, podcaster that you've? come across the guy that they're a guy or gal that are just complete naturals at it. That's a really good question. Um, the obvious answer that's screaming in my head right now is Mark Marin. He came from the radio world, evolved into the podcasting world pretty easily. And I mean, I, when you listen, he's done 500 something episodes of the show. When you listen to the early episodes of WTF, it's, uh, he doesn't have the format down, right? Like he, he hasn't nailed it. But when you listen to, you know, these recent ones, uh, he, he has full confidence. You can hear when an interviewer is nervous that they don't know what they're going to ask next or when their, their next question is whatever's was in their head ahead of time. But he's clearly listening to the answer, uh, from his guest and, and ready to pose, you know, uh, doesn't, doesn't come up with what his next question is until he's heard and digested what they've said. And I think that's pretty impressive. Another one I'd mention is, um, let me think the, uh, uh, you know, Renee Ritchie from, uh, from iMore hmm. now hosts something like 57 podcasts. And I would say that he, um, that's a slight exaggeration, but probably at least eight. Um, but he kind of had a similar evolution where, you know, early on he was just kind of figuring it out. But now he's just, he's so good at not fearing occasional moments of silence while he gathers his thoughts or processes what somebody else has said, uh, but also at, at keeping the show flowing. You feel like you're, you're in good hands. This podcast is going to be taken care of. And I like that. They have pretty good guests on some of his shows too. I yeah, think. and yeah, I think that that's the. Uh, I think it's a uh, less lazy approach to sort of consistently try to get good guests than to have a couple guys on that talk about the same topics again and again. And I kind of appreciate that they go through the slog of getting new people onto those shows. Yeah. Um, so I can't. I, I uh, the guy that came to mind. I hadn't thought of this before I asked it, but for me is John Syracuse. Oh, that's a good one. I, I, I've never met him in person, but he is unbelievable on the radio or on, on podcasts, I think. And um, tell me why. Uh, well, I think he's got a, a, like the other guys you mentioned, like, uh, Max and like Penn Gillette, I think he's got a personality that's very unique and he, like both of those guys do, is very smart. And, uh, there's something about him on, um, on his original show, and I think he carries ATP by a mile and a half, um, that uh, I could listen to for, you know, I could listen to a show that he did every day, I think, and I don't think there are many people that I'd feel that way about. Um, uh, and, you know, I think you're right, and I think it's an interesting combination that uh, several of the people we've mentioned have, um, where it, he's very smart, and he's very quick in that he's he's not just smart with interesting kind of analysis but he's he can be funny kind of in the moment uh as appropriate and i think it's it's that combination in his 
his comfort in expressing himself that really it just shines through. And he's, you know, he's exactly in person like you kind of expect. You know, he's a he is a developer's developer, and he's got some of the, you know, shyness I think that is not uncommon in the development world. Um, and I think the podcasts have been really good for him. I think he would say the same thing, um, that, you know, getting more comfortable and hearing that, hey, if I talk a whole lot and say a bunch of things, people tell me how smart I am or how right I am. And I think that's probably helped him, you know, in, in real-world interactions in addition to podcast-based ones. Yeah, right. I think that the thinking more about what I like about him, I think it's just the density of what he says. Like, so, so uh, for example, he was on the live talk show out in San Francisco recently, and I listened to that. And I, uh, I counted the number of times that he spoke and didn't get laugh-out-loud reaction from the audience. And it was like four out of 25. Wow. And, you know, it's, that's not that easy, you know, to, to be – because he's only speaking, say, for one-seventh of the time or so. So he had to pick his spots. And, uh, you know, almost all the time, maybe 80% of the time that he spoke, he got a, an audible reaction from an audience. And I, I think that being that dense with your content is tricky. You know, it's hard yeah. to be that effective. So I like him too. And, you know, I, I do a couple of podcasts myself. I do two that have co-hosts and then I do the one every day that's by myself. And the one by myself is totally nerve wracking for me in ways that I don't often think about because I have no idea if it's entertaining. When there's other people there, you're bouncing something off other people. And I think that John is really, really good at that and, uh, you know, really good at, at kind of hearing from, uh, from Marco and Casey I should have said Marco and the other guy missed opportunity, but hearing from Marco and Casey, um, you know, where their heads are. And if he disagrees, he's willing to disagree and even passionately and kind of hilariously disagree, but do so in a way that shows that he's given thought to what they're talking about. And like, so it's, it, there's a nice play off those hosts. Um, and when I do that show by myself, it's like, man, I have no idea if what I'm saying makes sense or is interesting or if I should have abandoned this topic three minutes ago. And in a five-minute show, three minutes ago is a lifetime. <laughs> right. You know, thinking more about Penn and Max and... John Syracuse, they all have uh, have a, a particular trait in common that I think is is not common, which is uh, they all are kind of insulting, but everyone likes them. And <laughs> because John always insults Casey and Marco all the time. <laughs> I mean, if he, in one episode he'd insult each of well, especially Casey, I think, but Marco to some degree too, at least a handful of times. And most people would really get the ire of the other side of be going if they sort of said as direct and negative of, uh, as uh, the comments that he tends to direct at them. Um, but no one, I don't think anyone feels negatively about how, about how he is. And, you know, obviously Max's shtick is in part, at least to be, um, divisive, uh, at least to some people. And Penn clearly has made a massive career out of the same thing. I wonder what it is that they, they do that enables them to be sort of caustic in some ways, yet likable. To me, you know, I think that that's an interesting and astute observation. And I think it's that, and this is, you know, after digesting what you said for a minute, um, tops. But, you know, there are people who are putting others down or insulting them because they're trying to do it to elevate themselves and say, you know, they're trying to feel better about themselves. But you feel like, and this might just be their success at how they're doing it, but you feel like that these folks are, uh, when they're, when they are casting aspersions on others, they just mean it. <laughs> like it's coming from a place of, you know, genuine honesty and reality. It's not like I pen want to feel like I'm better. I think they're also pretty good at being self-deprecating. So I was like, I'm not perfect, but boy, neither is this person faux show. And I think it's like that kind of mentality <laughs> that, uh, that helps them get away with it. 
I think you're right. I think honesty, uh, that's a pretty good tonic. You know, you can get away with a lot if you're being honest with yourself and others about things. Yeah. All right. Well, I hope that, uh, so, so the idea was, uh, if we talked a bit inside baseball about podcasts, this would, uh, spark the interest of those Ruby on Rails podcast or developers that also are into podcasting. They're looking for a job. And, uh, my suspicion is there are some of those out there. So, well, I thank you. I mean, that's, uh, it's, I think you're right. I think if we're going to find the right person that, uh, that my coming on here is certainly going to help, but I would come on here even if I didn't have a job to show. I want to be clear. <laughs> right. Uh, a, uh, your PHP development from six years ago needed a place to. <laughs> That's right. I needed to share. <laughs> Come chat. My love of memcache. <laughs> exactly. All right. So if uh, if someone wants to listen to your podcast, what are their names? Uh, so Your Daily Lex. Uh, it's, I don't know how we came up with that title. And then I do a fatherhood podcast with John Moltz and John Armstrong. That's uh, Turning This Car Around. And I do a, a podcast in which... Uh, Dan Morin and I watch movies that everybody else has seen, but that somehow we missed. That show is called Not Playing with Lex and Dan. I haven't listened to Not Playing. Has that gone pretty well? Uh, it has. You know, we, we do two, epi- two versions of each episode where you can get the full commentary track where you're watching a movie along with us as we watch it for the first time. Or you can take, you know, just the 25-minute version where it's what we knew about the movie before we watched and then our thoughts right afterwards. So it's inclusive. You can hear the full commentary. Ver- the, let me try again. You can hear the capsule version in that full commentary episode. It's just the beginning and end. Um, but, the, uh, you know, it's, it's not a huge show in terms of audience or reach. But um, the folks who like it really seem to like it. John Syracuse is actually a big fan. We're hoping, uh, I think we're going to watch a movie with him this season. So that should be fun. Oh, yeah. That'd be great. He's got uh, got kids, right? I think so. He does, yeah. And he has a strict rule that, like, Dan has not seen um, Goodfellas. But it's really important to uh, John Syracuse that Dan not watch Goodfellas for the first time on this podcast. (laughs) He's like, it's too important. It's too it's too significant of a movie, and we can't we can't use your silly podcast as a way for Dan to see it. Isn't that the whole point of the podcast? Yes, I don't know. I, he doesn't get a veto here, but he has very strong feelings about it. At least, I think uh, I think turning this car around is is a good show. I haven't listened to all of them, but I listened to the first few. I think I thought they were good. Thank you. I appreciate that. It's uh, for me. You know, the worst case scenario is I hang out with uh, with John and John once a week, and that's not so bad. I think John Moulton is a, a very funny guy. He's, yeah, I mean, he's really good, and he's really good on podcasts. And then John Armstrong uh, didn't have – he's um, the, the ex-husband of, uh, of Deuce, Heather Armstrong. Okay. And, um, you know, he had not done any real podcasting before, and he's, uh, I think he's pretty natural at it. Yeah, I think so, too. I think a quick, like, personal aside about, about his role on the show is so I, uh, I've got a bit of a Brady Bunch family, so uh, a stepdaughter that's uh, – turning 18 in, in a couple weeks and then, um, two kids from a, a, a previous marriage and I'm remarried, you know, so one of the, one of those deals. And, uh, Got it. it's interesting, you know, you don't hear uh, a ton of people, uh, in, in podcasts or radio or whatever, talking about kind of the realities of that, uh, existence. Right. And, uh, while I don't know that John and I share all that much in common, I appreciate that, that he kind of brings that perspective because it, uh, I think it adds something to the show. Otherwise, we'd be uh, a little more down the middle. Right. I, I totally agree. And it's it's three very different parenthood experiences. You know, I have three kids, and John has two, and then John Moltz has one. And his, you know, John Armstrong is separated. John Moltz's son is adopted. And so it's, you know, it's three very different parenting perspectives, which I think works pretty well for the show. Yeah. 
All right, what about Twitter, if, if someone wants to follow you on Twitter? I am Lex Fry on Twitter. That's L-E-X-F-R-I. Hmm. I'd never pronounced that in my head before. Yeah, you know, I, I get a lot of Lex Free as well. I'm okay with either one, but I say Lex Fry in my head. Yeah. All right. Well, Lex, thanks lots for coming on the podcast. If someone wants to reach me, I'm barely known on Twitter. <laughs>